Welcome to the podcast. Today is May 4th, 2020. And today we're going to talk about, well, how did we end up in this situation of, you know, big companies becoming bigger and bigger and bigger? And why do we need alternatives to the big behemoths out there? Well, in the late 1990s, many prominent figures in business and tech and economics, they all started worrying about the so-called year 2000 problem, also known as the millennium bug or Y2K. Now, this problem refers to basically how computers store calendar dates, how they stored them with only two digits, which means that the year 2000 would be, well, indistinguishable from 1900. So therefore, a lot of people were anticipating some pretty serious issues that would start materializing at the turning of the millennium, because the, this would render all kinds of dated records and you know, real-time events and so forth, well, incorrect. So it was speculated that once we hit the year 2000, this would trip up anything from stock markets to you know, various manufacturing processes to, well, your own alarm clock, I guess. And after all, I mean, if, if the computers suddenly think that it's 1900 again, then, well, surely that would have some kind of side effects, right? Now, meanwhile, old Alan Greenspan, who was then the head of the Federal Reserve, that is the central bank of the U.S., he took a particularly keen interest in this issue. And in fact, he was particularly worried about it, or at least he was worried about the societal side effects that would stem from this bug. So Greenspan basically said that if Americans were worried enough about, you know, their bank accounts freezing up or the you know, ATM machines no longer working, then suddenly they would start to, you know, withdraw cash in large sums. And all of this would, of course, place a lot of stress on the financial system. Now, Greenspan himself, he was, he was of course, urging the citizens to remain calm and not to prepare or anything like that. But meanwhile, he, of course, he had the Federal Reserve prepare a whole bunch of cash. He literally stockpiled shrink-wrapped currency at, uh, at many locations throughout the country. And so all of this actually kind of harkens back to today a little bit. And, you know, the scrambling for facial masks and so forth. Now, Greenspan, he also promised, as central bankers always do, he promised more liquidity if needed. And he kept interest rates pretty low during this period of time. Now, all of this, of course, helped perpetuate, you know, easy credit and easy credit to flow into the most speculative assets at that time, which happened to be dot-com stocks, of course. So yes, in some small part, I guess we do have, you know, one man's overblown worries to thank for the creation of the stock market bubble, the dot-com bubble. Now, of course, when it became clear that the dot-coms were not really going to change everything we knew about the world, or at least not yet at that point, then... It turned out that many of the dot-com startups were just, you know, pipe dreams and frauds and, well, unnecessary technology just for technology's sake. So as we all know, what happened eventually was that the dot-com bubble popped. Now, of course, as you might have guessed, Greenspan's reaction was to, well, lower the interest rates yet again. So what he tried to do there was just to try and facilitate more credit creation and elevate the markets yet again. So throughout the next few years... Well, he kept the interest rates pretty low and he tried to bolster the economy. And uh, this was particularly needed now because at this point, America had found themselves in a war, namely with Iraq. So again, the easy money that had been created started flowing into the next big thing. Uh, and at that point, that happened to be the housing market. 
And I guess the reasoning was something like, well, this asset class has never seen a secular decline in prices uh, before, so it's probably a safe investment. Now, fast forward to 2005, when old Ben Bernanke, who was then head of the Federal Reserve, he started raising rates and trying to go back to some more uh, normal levels, historically normal levels. And, well, all of a sudden, people could no longer afford their mortgages. And, well, the bubble popped. But because you now had more leverage in the system, you now had more credit and you now had more instruments built on top of the housing assets and on top of the mortgages, then... Well, all this new ensuing chaos now suddenly threatened the greater financial system as well. So the banks themselves. And so what happened was, you know, as the market forces started coming into play and people started to sell anything to do with housing, then the market forces, of course, tried to liquidate all this uh, excess leverage and try to liquidate all these junk instruments that had been created. Now, the Fed's response to this, or their solution to this was, of course, well, you guessed it, to lower interest rates yet again and to provide ever more liquidity to save the banks. You know, the banks that actually created this mess in the first place? Yeah, those banks. The, the Fed had created basically just yet another sugar rush. And all this new capital started flowing into the next set of risk assets. So out of housing and into the next big thing. So basically the Fed had now blown up what's called the everything bubble. Because in 2010 and onwards, then, you know, stocks and bonds and even housing started rallying again. Well, of course, it rallied until it hit its next real world obstacle. So it rallied until that bubble found a pin, a pin that would break the bubble. And that turned out to be, well, not a bug, but a virus, as we all know. So fast forward to today. So it seems like the market forces have now once again caught up with this artificial bubble. And uh, what happened was, well, it sent uh, stocks just uh, going into free fall. And in fact, over the past couple of months, stock markets have come crashing down at the fastest rate ever, even faster than in 1929. And pretty much right on cue, as the crisis deepens more and more, it seems that both the central banks and the greater governments themselves, they have all panicked and they have kicked into hypergear to try and, you know, save us all. And as we all know, we've had lockdowns and all of this has basically strangled any traditional business or any business deemed to be you know, not essential by the government. So we basically had the most brittle conditions, the most brittle financial conditions you can imagine. And we pulled the rug out from underneath everybody. Not a great combo. Now, meanwhile, old Jay Powell, who is today the head of the Federal Reserve, he has, of course, decided to print money like there is no tomorrow, because maybe there is no tomorrow. Anyway, all of this has given us what I think will prove to be the great distortion, as I call it. So we've had a few different bubbles. And now if we don't succeed in inflating yet another bubble, which I doubt, then at the very least, we're going to have a great distortion. Well, we're going to have a great distortion in any case. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that big companies that um, already have a well-known online presence and can actually function online, they'll, they might actually even thrive in the short term here. But of course, any traditional business that does not have a very pronounced online existence and, uh, and relies on the physical real world to conduct business, they're probably going to die by the tens of thousands. 
And it's kind of interesting to look at, you know, for example, your local gardening store, chances are that it's probably going to be closed, right? But the gardening section over at, let's say, Costco might be open, but I'm pretty much willing to guarantee that you can buy all the gardening supplies you need from Amazon. So the point is that there will be some winners from this lockdown. And usually it's going to be the ones that are, you know, facilitated by the prevailing government policy. So certain businesses are deemed essential. They can continue to operate. Others cannot, even if they sell the same things even. Now, getting back to old Jay Powell here um, and his money printing um, he, of course, decided he didn't dis disperse all this new money through something like, let's say, tax rebates or using any kind of means that would have directly funded businesses. Uh, instead, what he did is he dolloped out this new cash to the banks, um, which has, I guess you can say that it's already resulted in a bit of a fiasco. Um, and I think many businesses are going to go under simply because they can't secure the funds fast enough. Of course, that's not to say that, you know, printing money is a good idea, but it is to say that winners and losers are determined by the banks yet again because they administer the handouts that we've now created. So the point of all this is that there are perverting effects of Fed policy. And it seems like, you know, every time the economy has faced an impending crisis, whether that's an imagined one or a real one, the solution always seems to be, you know, to accommodate with ever more monetary policy. And that was true in 1999, it was true in 2008, and it's true in 2020 for sure. And every time that the government puts its thumb on the scale, so to speak, then the outcome seems to be to fool the market into yet another frenzy. And of course, this creates further misallocations of capital. It uh, helps some and hurts others. So like I said, the government is picking winners and losers, and it allows for ever more unequal distribution of wealth. But this time around, it's quite possible that we see that established dot-coms, or such as they're often referred to the FANG stocks, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, Microsoft, and so forth, um, they're going to grow ever larger. And this has already happened if you look at just the stock market itself. The FANG stocks have hardly lost any value since February, while like I said, tens of thousands of businesses will go bankrupt. So why is this bad? Why is this great distortion bad? I mean, can't Amazon own everything and we'll all be happy? Well, let's not be too naive about the motives of Amazon. Or I'm certainly not. Because only just recently, they have again found themselves in some legal hot water here. Because of, as you might expect, antitrust action. And this time it looks like we may go into a criminal investigation here. So what's happening here? So basically, Amazon employees are said to have used data from the various third-party sellers that sell on Amazon to create copycat products for Amazon itself. So, I mean, we all know that you know, Amazon, they prioritize their own products, their own labels, their own brands in, in searches. And they position their own products as, you know, being the best value and quality, when in reality, that may not be the case at all. And so all of this is, of course, well, it's illegal. And I think it's a display of gross abuse of your position in the market. It's classical sort of monopolistic tendencies for sure. And I think it's yet another continuation of the greater trend here that we're seeing in big tech, 
So just to take a step back here, I mean, remember how Amazon initially outcompeted all those physical bookstores? Well, since then, they have, lo and behold, gotten into the business of opening physical bookstores. So what's happening here is once they control the market, once they have sort of outcompeted everybody by undercutting them on price, they suddenly now have, well, complete pricing power. And when they control the market, why would they possibly keep the prices low? How are you so sure that these new physical bookstores that are operated by Amazon are going to offer good value? They have nobody to compete them at the moment. And herein lies the danger of monopolies. And this is exactly why I think it's important to support the alternatives. And I think this is why alt tech is important and why I feel so strongly about it. Now, personally, I mean, I've made it a point to no longer shop at Amazon, even if it comes at the expense of a much higher price paid. But actually, here's a, a tip for you. You can use Amazon just as a search engine. So if you find a product that you really like, well, look up the brand's own website. Look up the manufacturer's own site because chances are that they'll be shipping that product themselves. And uh, occasionally there will even be a discount if you just care to shop around a little bit or even sign up to their newsletter or if you just ask them. And I think even similarly, uh, as tempting as it is in this day and age to use you know, the likes of Uber Eats or Deliveroo or Just Eat or whatever, you want, whatever app you want to use to order a meal, the restaurants behind the orders, they're not going to be making a great deal of money off of those orders. And neither is the delivery guy himself for that matter. So if you have to get a delivery, then at least pay a hearty tip would be my advice. Because that poor dude who's delivering the food, he's pretty much putting his, uh, his own health on the line as it is. But anyway, if you want your favorite restaurant to survive, then you know why not head on down to the restaurant itself and grab a takeaway? Because you probably need the fresh air and the walk anyway, right? Now, if you still have a mom-and-pop grocery store near you, then, well, why not support that? I mean, I've found that those kinds of places are far less crowded to begin with. So, and, and also, pro tip, if you are looking for quality meat, well, see if you can find a local butcher. If you're still lucky enough to have one, man, you're in for a treat. Another thing that people are looking for now during these times of lockdowns and whatnot is entertainment and games and movies and so forth. And um, yet another thing is, of course, you know, people are decking out their homes with uh, office equipment, preparing their home office, and they need more furniture, more appliances, more electronics, and so forth. Now, you can usually find a good deal on all this kind of stuff on places like, well, eBay, Etsy, maybe Craigslist, and so forth. And plus, if you use those, then a big chunk of that money is going to go to probably, you know, people who need it way more than, well, Amazon does. Anyway, it is a free world. You're free to do what you like and to shop where you like. If you want to give your, all your money to Amazon and Facebook and Google and Apple and so forth, well, that is your choice. But I do just want to make a point of how we got here, how we got to this position of uh, companies becoming ever, ever larger and even quite monopolistic in their behaviors. And I want to make a point of where all of this might be heading. Because with every single crisis seems to come more and more intervention, more and more monetary intervention. And with, with that comes more winners and losers. And the winners seem to become fewer and fewer and fewer. So every time we end up with more monolithic businesses. So first the banks got fewer and bigger and now the dot-coms are about to get fewer and bigger. Unless, of course, 
we keep supporting the alternatives. So be that choosing you know, your local corner store or the alt-tech social media platform rather than Facebook. It's your choice. What do you think? Do you like to support the underdog? Um, do you try to actively avoid the online behemoths out there? Do you think that makes a difference? Has all this COVID stuff made you change your shopping behavior whatsoever? Let me know in the comments below, wherever you're listening from. And thanks for listening.